Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have given us this book, these words, for by it we are able to see Jesus and see truth. We pray that we would now be instructed by it and guided by it and led by it. We pray that you would give us grace to believe it and to let it transform us so that we wouldn't just hear what may sound at first like just an odd, remote story, but see it connected to our lives. Take direction from it and do with it what you gave it for us. Pray even now, Lord, that you'd be with our ears to hear well, my mouth to speak well, that we would hug tightly to your word, and in your word we would hear and have happen all that you intend for this time. Come do this, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We pick up the story this week in Mark chapter 5, the passage that Mike just read for us. And let me just set the scene for you, especially coming off of what we heard and saw last week. Uh, here's the scene. A few years ago, my, my parents were flying from between the U.S. and India. And while they were on the plane, all of a sudden, without warning, unexpectedly, the plane started to just go down, just sort of dropped in the air. They said that it was for maybe 5 or 10 or 15 seconds, no warning, no announcement in the cabin, it just started to drop. If I remember the story right, my parents in that moment held hands and began to pray. Uh, You can imagine that it was a life or death situation for my dad to hold my mom's hand in public. Um, My non-Indian friends, Indian parents don't do public displays of infection. So they, they must have thought that they were really going to die, and they sought the Lord in that moment. And thankfully, needless to say, the plane didn't crash. Somehow the pilot regained control. They continued on their way and arrived safely to their destination. Now, you can just imagine what it was like for my parents to finally touch down on the runway, for those wheels to hit the ground, for them to get off the plane, and what it was like for that moment when their feet finally touched solid ground. Right? How thankful they must have been, how much they must have assured themselves they would never fly again. Uh, you wonder if that's exactly sort of the emotions that were going into the disciples' minds and hearts when we hear in Mark 5, verse 1, this verse, the beginning of our story. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. You wonder if, if their hearts weren't so grateful to get off that boat and finally touch solid ground. Remember, in the story we were at last week, in chapter 4, they had just gone through the most terrible storm. They were scared to death. The winds and the waves were crashing. Water was filling over into the boat. Their lives had flashed before their eyes. They were scared to death. You could imagine the sort of relief they felt when they climbed out of that boat, when they stepped onto the shore on the other side of the sea in the country of the garrison. So picture them. Right? Picture them, it's late in the night or perhaps very early in the morning. Right, Jesus had said, let's go out while it was evening. So they sailed through that night. You'd imagine that it's still dark out. Maybe the sun hasn't yet risen. And now they have touched down on the other side of the sea in the country of the Gerasenes. Except little did they know that all that had just happened was they had essentially hopped out of the frying pan and now stepped into the fire. They had no idea what was awaiting them as soon as their feet hit the ground. Picture them just for a moment. They are just now beginning to calm down. Just now beginning to catch their breath. 
Just now their pulse is returning to normal and perhaps as they are tying the shores, the boat to the shore, immediately is the word that Mark uses in verse 2. Immediately they are now met by another untamable, uncontrollable, wild storm, this time in the form of a man. Look at verse 2. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. So that's the scene. They had barely touched their feet off the boat onto the ground when out of the tombs comes running at them a demon-possessed man. Now, let's think about this for a second. Till now, in the gospel according to Mark, whenever there's a shore and a boat, and Jesus, there's always a crowd, right? Whenever we've seen Jesus and a boat and a shore, there's always been a crowd with many people. Now, there's a shore, and there's a boat, and there's Jesus, but he is about to meet a very different crowd. In fact, there's a crowd of demons, we'll learn, living inside this one pitiful man. And now, in verses 3 through 5, we're given a description of this lamentable, wretched, poor, tormented man. Look at verse 3 and following. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Let's pause there. Let's get Mark's description of this man so that we can picture him in our minds, so that we can get a sense of the awful and pitiful condition he finds himself in. For starters, we learn that he lives at the cemetery, right? He lived among the tombs. That is, he makes his bed in the graveyard. You think of that. When you're looking to buy a home, the realtor doesn't usually come and say, and there's a lovely view of the cemetery in the backyard, right? No, we don't even buy homes near cemeteries, let alone make our home in one. And if we're skeeved out by the graveyard, you should know that it was all the more so for Jews at the time. For Jews at the time, they had very strict laws about contact with the dead or things relating to the dead. In fact, if you came in contact for seven days, you had to go through things because you were unclean. This man didn't have occasional contact with the dead. He was living among them. He made his home among the tombs. He's, He's living unclean. In fact, that theme of unclean sort of comes out in the profile that Mark is creating. You'll notice that he's living in the region of the Decapolis towards the end of the story. That's these ten cities. It's Gentile territory. You know that also because in a few moments you'll see a herd of 2,000 pigs, which is an unclean animal. You begin to put this together, and the profile Mark is creating is here is an unclean man living in an unclean place. In an unclean territory, among an unclean people, near unclean animals, possessed by unclean spirits. I mean, could Mark make it any clearer? This man is in every way unclean. This is the last place you'd imagine God showing up. An unclean place among an unclean people with unclean animals. An unclean man inhabited by these unclean spirits. This is the condition of this man. 
Luke will add in his account. Luke 8 will tell the story as well. In that one, he'll add, not only did this man have no home, he wore no clothes. He, he walked around. He lived. So now you're picturing that as the disciples, just now catching their breath from the storm, touched down on the shore, immediately they're met by a man running out of the tombs, naked and screaming, possessed by demons. And then the picture grows some more. Living there, you're taught from Mark's account that this man is tormented and he has no rest. Did you catch that in verse 5? Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out. Did you hear that? Night and day, always crying out, walking among the graves, in the graveyard, in that cemetery, among the tombs, up and down the mountains, night and day, always crying out. You could hear this man, this wild, untamable, naked man running in the cemetery, night and day, shrieking and screaming these blood-curdling, demonic cries. And yet, here's the other thing. You know, for many of us, we might know what it's like to have a bad night. You might know what it's like to have a nightmare in the middle of the night, something so vivid and real. But if you have a bad night, what's your hope? That soon enough, morning will come, right? The sun will come out, and and then suddenly that has a way of dispelling whatever happens in the night. No matter how bad the night gets, you can't sleep at night, you have a terrible night, your hope is eventually the sun will rise, morning will come. But for this man, that morning of the soul never comes. It doesn't matter for him if the sun will come out tomorrow, for for him, night and day he's crying out. Day and night he's crying. He's crying out. There's no end to his agony. There's no ceasing to his pain. There's no reprieve. There's no, if I can just make it till the morning, then things will be better. For him, night and day, day and night, he is crying out. As I heard this description, it's the best sort of way of describing this man, is his life is a living hell. Right? If hell is this unending agony, this being cut off from God and cut off from people, that's this man's life here on earth. He's living among the tombs, out of his mind, naked running, and all the while, night and day, day and night, in this eternal agony. Moreover, we're told, he's a danger to himself and a danger to others. You read that he, verse 5, is always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Right? Even in our day, Psychologists will tell you about people who will cut themselves. Maybe some of you have wrestled with the kind of self-loathing and hatred that, that there's so much emotional pain, you have no idea how to show that out. This man loathes himself, hates himself, is destroying himself. And so as you picture the composite Mark is putting, here they are, they've stepped off the boat after this wild storm. Before they could catch their breath, comes running at them from the tombs, A naked man with perhaps fresh cuts or scars or scabs or blood all over him, screaming, shrieking at the top of his lungs, fierce in every way. Matthew adds in his description, this man was fierce and no one could pass him. Meaning if anyone came upon him, he would fall on them and destroy them. In fact, so much of a terror was he that they had to tie him down with iron chains, with shackles around his feet, all which he effortlessly broke. 
And so he was cut away from the community, now forced to live among the tombs. No one wanted him. This was where he could live. And there he is. And what Mark tells us is that the source of all this destruction and all the havoc in this man's life is because he finds himself inhabited and occupied and possessed by demons. Now, at this point, our culture, and maybe some of us would be tempted to laugh this story off as some kind of primitive fable. These are the kinds of things that are honestly freakish about our faith. And yet the scriptures don't blush in telling you that the story of this world is not a story where random molecules have bumped into one another, but the story of this world is that there is a good God and that there is also an evil enemy. They're not equal, but there is an evil force and power behind all the havoc you see in the world. An evil one who hates God and hates people and is out to destroy. And this man finds his life under the dominion of that evil power. We're told that it's not just one sort of stray demon that has inhabited this man, like the one that Jesus cast out in the early chapters of Mark in the synagogue at Capernaum. No, this man, when Jesus asks his name in verse 9, tell me, what is your name? This man responds by saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. I mean, the identity of this man has been so overcome and lost that his personality has given way to this demon. The demon now speaks through him, and he says, My name is Legion, for we are many. Now, anyone living at that time would have immediately known what Legion was. Legion was just another way of saying a, a Roman army or battalion. And in a Roman legion, you had anywhere from five to 6,000 soldiers. And that's the phrase this man used to describe how many or what his name was. A, a, a Roman legion had five to 6,000 soldiers. And this man says, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, we don't know what the exact number is, and that's not the point. The point is, Mark is saying, this man has now been occupied, inhabited by not one and not two. And not five, and not six, and not ten, and not twenty, and perhaps not even a hundred or two hundred. This man is occupied now by an army of demons. We are legion, for we are many. Now, Samaro, do you get in your mind a good picture of this tortured and tormented man? You think of it. At some point in his life, he had a real name, not legion. At some point in his life, he was somebody's son. At some point in his life, he was somebody's baby boy with his whole life ahead of him. At some point in his life, he was somebody's neighbor. At some point in his life, he was somebody's friend. But whatever the circumstances were, or the events were, or the choices he made, or the decisions he took, whatever it was, he now finds himself here, living among the tombs, naked, bleeding, crying out day and night with no rest, terrorizing others, destroying himself, cast away from the community, cut off from everyone, defiled under God, unclean, and under the power of a legion of demons. Mark's picture is to show you this man was hopeless. Right? Hopeless. There was no bright horizon coming. 
There was no better day on the horizon. For him, there was no one and nothing that could help him. People had tried, and the best they could come up with was to tie him down with shackles and chains. There was no one and nothing that could help this man. Now, before we move on from this to the next scene, we would pause here to make one observation, and the observation is this, that when you compile this story with the rest of Scripture, that the testimony of the Bible would be that this man's condition is a graphic and vivid picture of every human being's condition apart from Jesus Christ. You should hear that. That the scriptures would teach that while this man's story may be extreme in its details, this man's story may be graphic and vivid, this man's story is nonetheless a picture of every human being's condition apart from and before Jesus Christ. The Christian would know when I see this man, I get the details are extreme, but I'm looking in the mirror. And the non-Christian should know this is what the scriptures say is your condition apart from Jesus Christ. For example, Paul, if I were to just point you to one other place, and there's many we could go to. Paul in the New Testament, in a letter to the Ephesians, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, he'll describe the human condition. And when he describes us, he says this about all of you, about me. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Did you hear that? You were dead in the trespasses and sins. Not sick, not weak, not needing a boost, not different degrees of deadness. We were dead in our spiritual lives. Not living near a tomb, we were spiritually in the tomb. You had no thought for God, no desire for God, no reaching out for God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Verse 2, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Meaning all of us, maybe not demonized this way, this man, but all of us followed the ways of this world and followed the prince of this world, the enemy of our souls. That is the spirit that is now at work within the sons of disobedience, verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The scripture would give you an honest and unflattering picture that says to you, before Christ and apart from his grace, you have much more in common with the man from the tombs than you might know, or me ready even to admit, that this is your condition, spiritually dead to God, alive to sin, following the evil one, isolated and alienated from God and his people, destructive to others, destructive to yourself, Unclean, ashamed, defiled, a mess. This is our condition. But thanks be to God for this man in Mark 5. And thanks be to God for us that we're not left in that condition. Because the story will say there is someone. There is someone who has seen us at our worst. There is someone who saw you at our worst and would go through any sea. And go through any storm to get to you. In the story, there is someone who will cross any length. And go through any storm. 
and travel the furthest sea to get to this one soul. Now, who's that? Before I tell you about Jesus, I want to just show you how Mark sort of sets Jesus up for us. I want to highlight for you what Mark does here. Uh, do you get the scene? Here is this man who, because of his bondage to Satan, has this unbelievable strength. Do you notice? Verse 3, no one could bind him anymore. Verse 4, no one had the strength to subdue him. So that you're left at this point in the story going, if only there was someone who could bind the strong man. If only there was someone who could subdue the strong one. If there was only one who was stronger than the strong man, who could bind the one that cannot be bound. And if you've been paying attention in Mark, suddenly your ears perk up. It's almost like you can go, Mark, we see what you just did there. It's like you've left some breadcrumbs and this trail back to what you had already said. You see, in Mark 3, verse 27, Jesus had said, My kingdom has come into the earth. It's collided with the kingdom of darkness. And when it does... I will be the one who binds the strong man and plunders from his house. That's what Jesus said I had come to do. Uh, no one can take from the strong man unless you first bind the strong man and plunder from his house. And now here we are in Mark 5 going, if only there was someone present in the story who could bind the strong man and deliver him from his captivity. And here he is, Jesus in verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar... He ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Right? Here's the scene. This man has come running at them, and yet Mark, Mark has already prepared us for this because Mark has put this story right after the sea story, the storm story, as if to say the one who had authority and power to tame and calm the most uncontrollable waves and wind is also the one who has authority and power to tame and calm the most uncontrollable one, to, to have power over the evil one and all his dark forces. In this story, fortress is our God. It's right for us, weak Christians, who find ourselves united to a strong Christ, to sing this one verse that I'll read for you. We're going to sing in a few moments, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. The weakest of us can sing, because there is one stronger than the strong man. The most scared of us can sing, because there is one who can bind the one that cannot be bound. It's right for us to confess that Jesus, whether it be over the worst storm like we saw last week, whether it be over death and disease like we'll see in the stories next week, whether it be over danger or demons, Jesus Christ has power over them all. Jesus Christ has power over them all. In fact, it's almost like Mark is saying, do you hear me? You don't have to be afraid. A powerful God is with you. And then you see these demons beg. Verse 11. 
Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. All right, now what's with this odd part of the story? just seems like a random waste of perfectly good bacon. What, what, is, what is happening in the story with these 2,000 pigs? The honest answer is I have no idea. Some say that perhaps what's happening here is a demonstration, an assurance to the people watching and to the man that the power that was in him has now left. Right? Maybe in this vivid, visible sign of seeing 2,000 pigs suddenly go out of their mind, run down a steep and drown in the sea, it was a visual picture that was what was in this man is now really out of him. You wonder, right? Maybe, maybe the next day, otherwise the man would have wondered, are they really all gone? And maybe this was a vivid, visible picture for him that what was in you is now out of you. Look, it's drowning in the sea. It's gone. It won't come back. Maybe it was a, a vivid picture for them all of this is what the evil one intends to do. As if Jesus were to say, if I did not sail that sea and come through this storm, I want you to see them down in the lake drowning. That's what this thing intended to do to you. And for all of us to know behind all the temptations that seem alluring to us, behind all the lies that seem to promise life for us, is an evil force that wants to see that happen to you. And Jesus is essentially saying, if I had not intervened, that would have been your fate as well. Jesus says in John 8 that we have an enemy who's come to kill, kill to steal, and to destroy. This is what he's come to do. Perhaps it's a picture of the great cost that for Jesus, there is no cost too great for the deliverance even of one man. That he would gladly see 2,000 pigs drown if it be that one man would be set free. Right? Perhaps it's a vivid picture that Jesus does, as it says in another gospel account, value us more than the sparrows. He does value us to the point that he would rather see one man set free than 2,000 pigs roam free. There's no cost too great for the deliverance of Jesus Christ. Whatever it is, what's even more striking how the people respond. Look at verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Now before we go on to see what they do and say, would you for a moment just picture in your mind this transformation? Would you get in your mind for a moment how wonderful and mighty and merciful this Jesus is? This is the last place anyone would want to go. Jesus went there. This is the last person anyone would want to deal with. Jesus dealt with him. This is the last person anyone saw anything good coming out of. Jesus went for this man. And now would you see this man, whereas one moment ago, he is running up and down the mountains through the graveyard, naked, cut, bleeding, defiled, unclean, screaming out ununderstandable words, just a total mess out of his mind. Now do you see him? Sitting there clothed in his right mind at Jesus' feet like one of his disciples. 
Do you see the utter transformation that this Jesus of Nazareth brings into the life of this person? And is it not a picture of what he intends to do for all, even us? us say, we are not yet who we will be, but thanks be to God, we are also not who we once were. I am not who I once was. And if you know Christ, you are not who you once were. Isn't it a beautiful scene to see this man clothed and in his right mind sitting at Jesus' feet? And yet look at the response of the people. Verse 16. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. Verse 17. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. I mean, if you, if you think more startling response. Not, oh Jesus, here was this man whose life was over and you delivered him. But instead, they began to beg Jesus to leave their region. It's almost as if the sin and brokenness of the man was outrageous and evident and visible for all. But the sin of this people was much more subtle, much more respectable, if you will. They were middle-class folks who banked their security on their 2,000 pigs and would rather see this man living in that state and them have their pigs than to see the terrible cost of Jesus' deliverance. They beg Jesus to leave. And what a tragic verse that is. That Jesus of Nazareth shows up to your town, to your region, and the response is, beg him, please go away. That what the people would have wanted the demons to do is what they end up begging Jesus to do. Leave. Be gone. Get out of our region. And perhaps what's even more tragic is he does. Not welcomed there, and so he'll leave. But not before verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. So the scene is, they have begged Jesus to leave. Now this man comes and begs Jesus, let him come. They've begged Jesus, go. He begs them, let me come. Let me go. I'm not with them. I'm with you. Let me go with you. Wherever you go, I'll go. I mean, you think of that. He doesn't even know where Jesus is going to go. He just knows he's got to go with Jesus. Let me come with you. Don't leave me here alone. I heard this one preacher who asked this one question that stood in my mind. You wonder what this man's condition was, how desperate he was. This wasn't a long encounter. This was just a few hours at most. And now he's begging Jesus. What if he's thinking to himself, what if they come back? You have to let me come with you. Don't leave me here alone. Let me come with you. In fact, his question is that he might be with him. Those are not random's words. Mark used those words, be with him, Earlier, when he talked about how Jesus called the apostles, when he called the apostles, it was a call to be with him. And now this man is saying, let me come and be with you. And Jesus says, no. I mean, you, you, as Benu and I were talking in between the services, he was just recounting, this Jesus is so unpredictable. All this while, he's calling people to himself. Now you've got one guy saying, let me... No. I mean, you think... The, the demons made a request, he agreed. The town made a request, he agreed. This man asked him, let me come with you, 
and he will not permit him, is what verse 19 says. He did not permit him. But listen, Sevmarod, listen to this. It's not because he doesn't want this man. I mean, Jesus has already proven how much he wanted this man. Jesus has already proven how much he wanted this man in that Jesus sailed through the sea, through the worst storm, just to get to this man. You know, one verse after the story is done almost knocked me over. Verse 21, chapter 5, says that when this whole thing was done, Jesus got back in his boat and went back to the other side. Almost as if to say, this whole thing was just to come get him, and then he left. Does that not strike you? That Jesus go through that terrible storm, through the sea, that the guys almost died in the boat, they almost drowned, they were scared to death, and all of that work for, was for the ministry, it turns out, of delivering this one man, and then we'll go back. Is it not good news to hear that for the most tortured, pitiful soul, there is none whom the length is too far, the cost is too great, that Jesus would not be willing to come. He would go through the seas. He'll sail across the ocean, if it were, to get to this one man. It's not that he doesn't want him. Look at verse 19. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Go home and tell your friends how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. That's when you begin to see, in fact, Jesus said no to this man partly, partly because even though that region didn't want Jesus, Jesus still wanted that region. Even though that region didn't want anything to do with Jesus, Jesus still wanted that region. And so he was not going to take the one witness that was there in that region. He was going to leave him behind. And in fact, it's because he left him behind that he could go on and do more ministry. It's because now he had enlisted this man and entrusted this man with mission and his message and said, go. Go home and tell all your friends what the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Listen, Sabmarod, do you know that this man is the first missionary in the gospel according to Mark sent out by Jesus? That the first one sent out with the message to proclaim is not the apostles and not the disciples. It's not the scribes or the Pharisees. It's not even a Jew. It's a Gentile, raving, lunatic, demon-possessed, naked, bleeding man that Jesus healed that is sent out as the first missionary in Mark. Go and tell everyone what the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Is that not encouraging? But even more so, hear this. Apparently, this man was a great missionary. Look at verse 20. It says, And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis. That's these ten cities. He doesn't just go home. He goes through the ten cities. How much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This man receives this call. And he goes throughout the Decapolis and tells everyone how much Jesus had done for him. Now, one thing to notice. Mark has a subtle hint here. Did you catch it? The call in verse 19 was, go tell everyone what the Lord has done for you. Right? 
Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go tell everyone what God did for you. This man goes and tells everyone what Jesus did for him. And that's Mark's way of saying, did you, did you just notice? I told him, go tell everyone what God did. He went and told everyone what Jesus did. Guess who I'm telling you Jesus is? See, Mark is painting you a picture. And he's saying, are you, are you putting things together? This man went and told everyone what Jesus had done for him. And so much so that when you keep reading in Mark, do you know that when we come back to this region... This region that wanted nothing to do with Jesus. The next time Jesus will be back in this region, there's a crowd so great that Jesus will have to feed 4,000 of them. 4,000 of them will show up to hear Jesus teach and see what Jesus does in the same region that told him leave. You wonder, how many people did this man tell? You wonder how wide and far did this story go? You wonder how effective was his work. Friends, this is our story. We were this man. Before the grace of Christ broke into our lives, before he went by our tomb and called our dead souls to life, we were this man. Unclean, defiled, ashamed, with a story and a past that we would never want anyone to know. This is our story. Cut off from God, cut off from his people. This is who we were. And then Jesus in his grace met us. And it's to us, Jesus says, like to this man, go. Go tell your friends. Go tell your neighbors. Go tell your coworkers and your classmates. Go tell your relatives and your cousins. Go tell your fathers and your Go tell your brothers and your sisters, tell them of what the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And friends, listen, what a story we have to tell. This man's story was incredible. I want you to hear, though you may not know it, your story is even more so. Jesus didn't sail a sea to get to you. He crossed the distance between heaven and earth to get you. He saw you at your worst, in your mess, and he did not think the distance between heaven and earth, no matter what came, would be too great to come get you. And for you, Jesus will trade places with this man. Meaning Jesus' story by the end of Mark will look like this man's story in his shoes for your sake. Because at the end of Mark, you'll find Jesus is the one who is stripped of his clothes, who is now visible naked for all to see humiliated before everyone. Jesus will be the one who will face a legion of Roman soldiers who will use stones to whip his back and cut him up. And naked, defiled Jesus will be the one hanging on a cross who will cry out in agony and torment and torture, abandoned by God and deserted by all people. This is the length of Jesus' mercy for you. This is the length of Jesus' mercy for me. Not so much that he will even eventually just go near a tomb. He will be put in the tomb. So that by the end of Mark's account, for us, such is the mercy of Christ, that Jesus will be the naked, cut up, bleeding, defiled, unclean man in the tomb. For us. For you. For me. So go and tell everyone what the Lord has done for you and how 
he has had mercy on you. In whatever opportunities the Lord gives you, in whatever spheres the Lord grants you, go with that word. Let me end with reading you a text. This week I got a text from Pastor Binu on Wednesday night, and this is what it said. It said, brothers, I was at Starbucks meeting with these two folks, and towards the end of our meeting we were praying together. This guy was standing near us and watching us pray. After we finished, he asked us if we were praying. Long story short, he told me that he has been thinking about a higher power for some time and is trying to figure things out. I shared with him in three minutes about God, man, Christ, and our response. He said, I've never heard this before. He jokingly asked, is this guy trying to pitch me something? Because if he is, I'm in. I asked him if he would be up for telling me more about his story and what he's been thinking, and he said, yes, we've exchanged numbers, and I'm hoping to connect with him soon. Stuff like this never happens to me, so please pray that God would save this man. Go and tell everyone what the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Let's pray.